originally from Box Hill. I went to Box Hill State School. I went to Wesley College. But now I live in Billings, Montana in the United States. So uh, I come here probably once a year. Uh, I have a sister here. Um, and uh, a little sad, this visit. The night before I departed from Billings, I got an email and told me uh, my best friend really here had passed away. He had a stroke and I'd anticipated going to see him when I come here. We used to live in Box Hill. I lived in Elgar Road and we used to do all sorts of things together as boyfriends, you know. And uh, he's gone to be with the Lord. He was a professing Christian. <coughs> and then when I got here on my itinerary, I was planning to stay with another friend, a Baptist minister up in New South Wales in the Blue, Mil Hill, Blue Mountains area. And uh, anyway, I got here and then I had a call from his wife. He's had a stroke. And uh, quite serious, he's in Frankston and rehabilitation in Frankston. So, you know, it, it's a bit sad. And as you get to my age, I'm 80 going on 81. And when you get to my age, you, you know, I mean, this is what happened. Your, your circle of friends begins to diminish. And, uh, but that's good because it soberly reminds us, you know, that uh, we have to, again, go and be before God and be with the Lord. And that's sobering. We need to do that. This society we live in doesn't ever think about that. It's just the here and now. Eat, drink and be merry for today we die. But let's just think about the present and acquiring all sorts of things and playing golf or tennis and going to restaurants and all that sort of thing. That's all that matters. Decorating my house, decorating my body, all that. That's all we're concerned about. And these two occasions when I come here, you know, two good friends, one passed away and one is seriously again in a rehabilitation centre of Frankston with a stroke. And again, friends, we need to be sobered up today. Uh, the media you face so intoxicates you, uh, so influences you with worldly ways. And so I just say that as an introduction here because uh, I was asked last year when I came and spoke to you to speak on the matter of Israel because I have given a lot of time to this and had some books published. Uh, one book was published about nine years ago called Future Israel. And it caused quite a stir. Then about two weeks ago, a sequel volume was published. There's the book there. It's called Eternal Israel. Both of the books are available on Amazon. They're both available in ebook form. So I mentioned that if you want to look at them. I'm going to speak this morning on obviously something I've written here. But the main thing is not my books. They don't count at all. What counts is this book. And what I want to deal with this morning is found in uh, the uh, 19th chapter of Matthew. If you'll turn to that chapter, I want to read a section here to you. <coughs> Matthew 19. I want to start reading at verse 21 and then I'll read through to verse 28. And really we are just 
concluding this encounter of our Saviour with the rich young ruler. In verse 21 you read, Jesus said to him, the rich young ruler, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Today you often hear the term uh, identity theft. You ever heard that term? It has come in, I think, with the electronic age because we have credit cards and we have so much information kept on our laptops or our major computer, whatever it may be. We have these and therefore we are liable to identity theft. Uh, people can even do it when you go and get petrol and if you use a credit card and someone can be there and they can suddenly get your credit card details. And there's ways of doing this. It's called identity theft. I want to suggest to you the greatest identity theft of all has been on the part of the Gentile church and it's theft of the identity of Israel. The uh, church I call Gentile because frankly in the main it is. There are Messianic fellowships but when you look at genuinely, and I speak very broadly here, when you speak of the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Orthodox Churches, Protestant Churches, they are all mainly Gentile. The first church of Jerusalem in the time of our Saviour and after he ascended, it was under the headship of James, an earthly brother in the flesh of our Saviour. James was the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem. Eusebius, the great and famous church historian, tells us that from then on up to 135 AD, all the bishops, 15 of them, were all Jewish. Then Eusebius lists the next 15 bishops. After 135 AD, they were all Gentiles. And from then on, basically, the church 
was dominated by Gentile congregations and associations and denominations. And that has been going on for a long while and it goes on today. The mother church, as it were, had identity stolen by her children. And this has brought about today the belief by the Gentile churches that really they now are the true Israel. They believe that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ is a spiritual Jew. They also believe that whereas in the Old Testament and even in the time of our Saviour there was the land, we call it Palestine, but there was the land, the historic land of Israel, this territory right there butting up to the Mediterranean. The Gentiles now tell you that the world is the land. And there has been this identity theft which I find very offensive and also in this identity theft the result has been the mistreatment of the Jewish people because the Gentile denominations and fellowships have therefore said we are the new Israel. Now, how have they reacted therefore to the Jews who still say I'm a Jew and I have ethnicity, and I have nationality, and I have territory. Now the Gentiles say, we are the spiritual Israel. What do you think the Jews think? And what arrogance it is on the part of the Gentiles to think they have taken over. And the Jew and Israel is passe, it's, it's persona non grata. It's not surprising then, when you look at the history of the church, after 135 and you go on especially to Augustine. The greatest father really of the Christian church after Paul, at least up to Luther anyway, we'll say from Paul up to Luther, the greatest church historian, a greatest church theologian was uh, uh, Aurelius Augustine, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. And he especially, he didn't originate this, but he, because of his authority and his stature, he formulated the idea from the scriptures uh, that the Jews should be humbled, not killed, but humbled. They should survive, but not thrive. That has been the attitude of the Catholic Church, that has been the attitude of the Anakin Church, that has been the attitude of so many church groups and associations through church history. When you come up to the Reformation, it was a wonderful time of spiritual awakening in which the biblical gospel was recovered. But a right eschatology was not recovered. And Luther, I love the man, because he saw suddenly this gospel of the free grace of God through faith alone, sola fide, sola grata, all of grace, he saw that. I love the man when you grasp hold of that. He said that I went through open gates into paradise. But, sad to say, toward the end of his life, Martin Luther showed definite anti-Semitic tendencies. Apparently he thought the 
Jews would then flock to the gospel because of what he had found in Scripture. They didn't do that. I'm not surprised altogether because still then, even in Europe, the way the Europeans treated the Jews at that time was disgusting because they'd been mistreating the Jews for hundreds of years from Augustine up to the Reformation. And it's not surprising they weren't attracted. Can you imagine going to a Jew and saying, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is your Messiah. You've longed for him. He's come. It's Jesus of Nazareth with his words and his works. He's demonstrated. He's your Messiah. Believe in him. And you'll be reconciled to your Father in heaven. Oh, by the way, I want to tell you something else that when you do this, you will lose your Jewish identity. You will be absorbed into the Christian church and that will be it. You'll be one with them, but you won't be distinctively Jewish. That's all past. And that's what the church did. Even Augustine wanted to see the Jews saved. But when he then would see them saved, what he wanted was they would be merged into the Christian church and they would lose all their identity. In fact, in Spain, it was terrible there on King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella and they forcibly obtained conversions, which really weren't conversions at all. Some would convert and even when they converted and came into the Catholic Church there in Spain, they were still second-class Christians. And if they were discovered to be fulfilling anything Jewish in their lifestyle, even though they claimed to be Christians, <coughs> they were punished terribly. Now I'm saying this because you have to understand where we live today we inherit this attitude toward the Jew. It's not surprising when you see the denominations. The Catholic Church says it is the new Israel. In about 1942-43 the Archbishop of Canterbury formed a commission to look into the doctrine of the Anglican Church and they reviewed and considered all the doctrine. It came out in a book. I've got a copy of it. And in the area of what we call eschatology or Israel's future, they said the Church of England is now the chosen people. It is now the elect. The Church of England is now the new spiritual Israel. Now, if you're in England and the Church of England is making such boasts, as a Jew, how do you think you'd react to that? Would you be encouraged to believe in Christ as Messiah? No. All you're faced is with the arrogance of the Gentile church. And we face it today. I can reel off a number of scholars. There are all of this. One of you may know. One famous one would be N.T. Wright. There are others. Colin Chapman, Stephen Sizer. I'm quoting here all Anglican scholars. They're into replacement theology. Let me tell you just one uh, of one historic event in England's history. Go back to 1290 AD. You have King Edward there. He was King Edward I. At that time, of course, the church in England would have been Catholic or low. Then later on comes Henry VIII and the church of England becomes Protestant eventually. But anyway, in 1290... King Edward, in conjunction with the church and the archbishop and so forth there in England, concluded that they had to expel all the Jews out of England. You probably never knew about this. 
And the Jews were expelled from England from 1290 up to 1655. That's at the time of Oliver Cromwell. For 365 years, the Jews were expelled from England. This is one of the historic crimes of church history. And the likes of N.T. Wright and these other Anglican theologians should go down on their knees and ask the Jews for forgiveness for what they did for the Jews in England in the name of the crown and in the name of the church. 1655, Oliver Cromwell comes along. He's a good man. He's a Protestant. He's a Christian. He, he believes the Bible. And he has a sympathy for the Jews. A Jewish rabbi comes across from Holland. His name is Benassah, being Israel. And he pleads with Oliver Cromwell, who now reigns for a short while there. And he pleads with him the Jews might be allowed to come back. Oliver Cromwell calls a council, but whatever the council decides, he decides they can come back gradually. And they begin to come back gradually. And as, as a result, therefore, some synagogues and bill and so forth. And he eventually even get a Jewish prime minister in Benjamin Disraeli. He actually, of course, had to join the church. But he was a Jew. But today, you go to the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, a lot of Protestant churches too. They will say, we are the new Israel. We are the chosen of God and as far as historic Israel is concerned, that's, past, that's in the past there. You know, They need to believe in Jesus the Messiah, but they need to be engrafted into the church and join with us and they're not really Jews anymore. That's what is taught all around the world in this country, in America and in England and Europe. It's called replacement theology or supersessionism. In other words, uh, the church has superseded, you see, the, the whole uh, stature and uh, covenant promises of Israel. And so they will also say, I think I mentioned this before, the land, the land we know. Now the world is the land. They use Romans 4.13 to suggest that. I believe their exegesis of Romans 4.13 is way off. But N.T. Wright and others like him, they believe this. And you come to a passage, let's take one like Ezekiel 37, in which you have the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. You know. And we're told there in that vision, which all the bones are cold and, and, and there they are. Then they come alive and flesh comes to them and so they are awakened. And really what we have here is an illustration of what happened in the 36th chapter and when there's the promise in which finally Israel will be reborn, regenerated, They'll have a heart of flesh, not just a heart of stone. And you come to the 37th chapter, you have this wonderful illustration of this. These dry bones. And then they have flesh and they come to life. It's again the awakening of Israel. It's never happened until now. But what do these replacement theologians, what do they do with this passage? Well, they just say, uh, in our understanding of resurrection and regeneration, you know, we believe, don't we as Christians, as resurrection and regeneration, we believe in that. So Ezekiel 37 is just to teach us about the principles in the New Testament of, of resurrection and regeneration. It's nothing to do really with specifically national Israel suddenly being converted by the power of God and arising as a saved nation. 
that's what they do with it. And what they do further is they say, well, we believe that we need to interpret the Old Testament in the light of the Gospel. We know what the Gospel is. That's in the four Gospels, the writings of Paul and so forth. And so when we interpret the Old Testament, we take the Gospel and we impose it on the Old Testament promises and we reinterpret them in a rather arbitrary fashion. That's what they do. They'll say, the Gospel in Christ, that's the principle we interpret the Old Testament. Therefore, you see, when you come again to Zechariah 14, uh, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 11, all these great prophetic passages, which very specifically speak of the saving of Israel, the restoration of Jerusalem, Christ reigning, Messiah reigning there. They just, again, totally obliterate those and just say it's all fulfilled in the Gospel. Now, how do we answer this? And especially, how do we point out the terrible ethical consequences of this belief? This is my great concern. You know, it's one thing to have our views of the rapture and the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation. They're important matters, I agree. But we can talk about them, then we go home. But what about this matter of Israel and the ones being mistreated by the Gentile church and the ethical consequences of the eschatology of Augustine and Chrysostom and Ambrose and on it goes through the centuries there with the church who imposes Augustine's eschatology on the people. You don't just have your home Bible study and tell the local priest, well, we've come to the conclusion there's a future for Israel. You'll be in trouble. So my concern is we have here a fundamental ethical matter for a bad eschatology does not produce good fruit. And the eschatology of Augustine on through the centuries and right up to now has not produced good fruit. And that to me indicates there's something radically wrong with this eschatology. I believe we need to go back to what I would call a more pro-Judaic view of Christian matters. After all, my Saviour is the quintessential Jew. And the Gospel is absolutely Jewish at its core. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is that Jewish? <laughs> we smile, of course it is. The founding apostles of the Christian church are all Jewish. The first church in Jerusalem is all Jewish. And the Gentile children came along and stole it from the mother, as it were. And so my concern is we don't see this mirror as nice uh, eschatological uh, thought and uh, plan and understanding. We see this as critical I could go into Romans 11 and show you where Paul there. In Romans 11, Paul is addressing Gentiles in Rome. And some commentators believe that there is, in Romans 11, the suggestion by Paul that the Gentiles there in Rome have been mistreating the Jews. Because when you go into Romans 11 there, it tells us to treat the Jews, fear them and reverence them. If only Augustine had got on to the real understanding of Romans 11, history could have been very different. Now, how can we disprove this? Well, 
One of my favourite passages would be Romans uh, chapter 11, verse 28. Romans 11:28 is the verse I use to sort of be the ground upon the original book I wrote called Future Israel. But let me just ask you to turn Romans 11:28. I regard this as a critical verse. The reason is a friend of mine years and years ago was talking with me and we're talking about these matters about Israel and he says, Barry, he said, what we have to do is we have to show that God today is still interested in unbelieving Israel. In other words, Israel... Today is basically an unbelief. There's a remnant over there. There were some messianic fellowships. But basically it's a, uh, again, an unbelieving nation. Tel Aviv, the lifestyle in Tel Aviv is very bad. But generally speaking, you've got Orthodox Jews there too, locked into the law of Moses and so forth. And and you have all of this. And uh, again, this is what is uh, uh, so stressful for the Christian. Oh, how we desire that Israel would be saved. Paul said that, oh, if I could be condemned to hell, and he's using a sort of manner of speaking, I'd be condemned to hell if all Israel could be saved, you know, my kinsmen. How he longed for them to be saved. I believe Christians ought to have that attitude. A Christian ought to have a love for the Jewish people. No matter how hard they are and difficult they may be and whatever you may know about them, they're difficult. But still, look at this verse here. This is what God tells us in Romans 11:28. Concerning the gospel, they, he's speaking of the Jews there, they means the Jews. Concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your, the Gentiles' sake. But concerning the election, they're being chosen, if you like, they're chosenness. (coughs) But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Paul, writing in a time when still most of Israel is unbelieving. Paul is writing there of Israel in his day. And he is saying still the Jews are God's beloved enemies. Of course, he goes on later on in the 26th verse, he says, so all Israel shall be saved. That's a, a whole another matter we could get into. But all I'm trying to show you is this verse here totally disproves the Augustinian view that Israel now is really supplanted by the church and so forth. Because Paul says here, Israel, unbelieving Israel, obviously when he says Israel here, his kinsmen, He's speaking about the nation of Israel, the Jewish people historically. In the old, he must be speaking about them, the Jews there. And he's saying they're still beloved. Why are they still beloved? Because of God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But do you see the power of this verse here? God is not finished with the Jew here. But now let's go back to Matthew, shall we? Because here's another verse. This to me, again, is a, what shall I say, a killer verse. This is one that destroys the Augustinian presupposition. And uh, it is a verse, well, let me tell you, um, I was living with my sister, I 
I've moved up to friends now in Roeville, but I was staying for a week with my sister, and she has a, a good library, and she has a collection of commentaries. She'd got a new commentary uh, on Matthew. And uh, when I look at a commentary on Matthew, I'll often look up Matthew 19.28. And uh, I went to this commentary and looked it up. And this commentator, it, it's, it's a homiletical commentary, I'll say that. It's, it, it's about sermons this man's preached. But he, he's a scholar, he, you know, I mean, he's very able. And anyway, when it comes to verse 28, now let's look at this 28th verse uh, once again, shall we? Matthew 19, 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, <clears throat> when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you, that is his disciples, who have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, this commentator comes to this verse, I'm telling you, all he says is, Whatever it means, the disciples have a responsibility here. And this man is supposed to be a preacher expounding the truth. Now, why does he say this? I'll tell you why. Because he comes to this verse with his theological presuppositions that don't fit with the text here. I have no trouble with expounding that verse at all because of my view of Israel. But if you're more into supersessionism or Augustinian belief, what are you going to do with this verse? Say whatever it means? That tells you he's troubled here. He can't handle a verse. I've said to Messianic uh, congregations, I've said, believe me, on this whole issue, I said... The scripture is on your side. Here's a case. I could show you other places. I could show you some exegesis of N.T. Wright where he's plainly wrong. But he is driven by a system in the Anakin communion there and he follows along with replacement theology. Even he's a great New Testament scholar. I'll share with you. Anyone wants to know afterward, I'll show you where N.T. Wright is plainly wrong from the Greek text. Now let's look at this verse here. What a wonderful verse it is. I love it. I'm happy with it. I want to expound it. But another man says whatever it means. What a trouble he finds here. But it reflects, you see, the problem of having this system. You have a theological, eschatological system and you use it like a square peg in a round hole. And it's too bad for Scripture. You've got to hang on to your system, but all oh, Scripture will suffer. It really does. You should look up other commentators and see how they handle this verse. Believe me, they struggle. It reminds me, uh, my friend in the ministry in Melbourne here years ago, I was pastoring here, and uh, my friend was uh, Reverend John Coleman. He was pastor of uh, Camberwell Baptist Church. Good friend. I enjoyed fellowship with him. <coughs> We were talking about some of these matters one day and he said to me, it's, you know, it's, it's like the decorative iron shop in England. You know what decorative iron is? Where you can make it into all shapes for doors and gates and all that sort of thing. Anyway, he said there was this decorative iron shop in England there and it had a banner under it that says, every form of twisting and turning done here. 
And that's what you get when it comes to a verse like this. Now, let's just uh, consider here the context. The context is that of the rich young ruler. You know. And we're told when our Saviour said, this thing I ask of you, sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful. And the disciples are watching this. They're listening to this. Lord, we have given over all of the fish industry we're involved in in Galilee. We have thrown that aside. You said, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We've done all that, Lord. What then will be our lot? What will the future hold for us? And you'll notice that our Saviour doesn't hold back in telling them the good news of what their destiny is. Now, I want to stop there. I want to drop back to Acts chapter 1. Do you remember in Acts chapter 1? Right there, just before the outpouring of Pentecost, in Acts 1, our Saviour says, it's Acts 1, 6 or 8, and the disciples say to our Saviour, Lord, and he's risen, he's he's risen now, of course, Uh, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And the same response, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons right now. I believe he's saying this, look, you've got to understand you have a ministry in front of you that you really ought to focus on. It's not for you to know the times and seasons. He doesn't say, oh, the, the, you know, the kingdom to Israel, oh, that's all passe, that's all gone, that's, that was Old Testament, there's something just more uh, comprehensive now, the kingdom of Christ, including everything. He doesn't say that at all. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. And then he says, the Holy Spirit is about to be poured out. And of course, we know this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, then shall the end come. And so our Saviour in Acts chapter 1, obviously is saying, look, you've got to realise that's not coming now. You know, that's not for the present. It's not for you to know the times and seasons when that will finally come about. Now, think about this in Acts 1. When the disciples said, you know, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Why did they ask that? Was that a new thought that had come to them? Something that they never thought of before? Of course not. Our Saviour is risen, he's there, they're in wonder, uh, they wonder at the glory of seeing him alive and all that. And they think back to what he has taught them on some other occasions. Surely that's the case. He, they just didn't come up with this you know, and hadn't thought about it before. They had thought about it many times. Will you restore the kingdom of Israel? I would add here almost as you have taught us previously. Well, you may say, well, well where did he ever teach about the restoration of Israel? Right here in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. There's another similar account of this in Luke's Gospel. Two basic references to the disciples then eventually reigning over the tribes of Israel. And uh, I suggest to you, they knew well in Acts 1 that our Saviour's teaching. Is it coming now, Lord? You're risen? Aren't we going to have the kingdom now to Israel? No, 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 no. No, that's not for now. But he had taught them about the kingdom in Matthew 19 and in Luke. And here's an interesting thought. 
when you get the two accounts in Matthew and Luke, and you look up what we call these harmonies of the gospel. You know what a harmony of the gospels is? Well, they take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they try to put them in one connected narrative, putting all the pieces together. It's not easy to fit it all together, but there's some good works that have done this. And anyway, when you look at all of the harmonies of the gospel I have, I've got at least four or five, they, all of them made a distinction between Matthew and Luke. They did not put Matthew and Luke and weave them together in one. The Matthew account they put roughly just before Passion Week and the other one in Luke is back much further. Now, if these harmonies of the gospel are presenting this truth about the future of Israel, the disciples running over the twelve tribes, if they put it on two separate occasions, what does that indicate? It indicates that our Saviour taught on this subject on several occasions. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. So, let's ask a few questions about this passage. In my book here is more detail, you can read about that. But let's ask, what's this regeneration here? In the regeneration, the Greek word is palingenesia. It means in the rebirth. When the earth is born again. You've got it in Acts chapter 3 there. That which is promised by the prophets in, in Acts 3 there. We won't bother to turn that up. But it, it's when there is going to be a new heavens and new earth in which dwells righteousness. But you'll notice in the regeneration, the new heavens and new earth, when Jerusalem comes down and we have this earthly kingdom of Christ, you know. Still, Israel is distinctively Israel. That's what we're told here. This is in the regeneration. You know. No more crying, no more tears, former things have passed away and so forth. It's talking of, if you like, the millennium or it's talking of the future messianic kingdom. Israel will be converted, the Gentiles will be converted and I think it's almost impossible to imagine what life would be like. Life in that sort of economy with Christ reigning and Jerusalem converted and the Gentiles converted. The whole aura of that economy must be wonderful. Beyond comprehension, really. And then there will be the enthronement when the Son of Man sits on his throne. Son of Man there probably is a reference to Daniel, chapter 7 and so forth. But then there's also to be the enthronement of the twelve apostles, obviously including Matthias rather than Judas. But the disciples are going to be enthroned too, if you like, theirs will be subservient thrones under the great reign of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Very interesting passage, this. <coughs> Daniel chapter 7. And verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow 
and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels of burning fire and so forth. The interesting thing is, you have the reign of God even in his son, you have here, again, the Ancient of Days. But it says earlier, it says, I watched till thrones were put in place. In other words, thrones subservient to the Ancient of Days. The Jews have even noticed this and suggested it might be some of the prophets or some of the leaders of Israel, whatever you like. But you and I believe, obviously, it parallels what we're reading here in Matthew chapter uh, 19, you see. What is the judgment by the twelve disciples? Probably their involvement in the economy of Israel at that time. And what specifically will be the identity of the twelve tribes? Well, that's not a big problem if we go and look at the scriptures and get the names of the twelve tribes. But I want you to think about this, the twelve tribes. What's a tribe? Tribe has two important aspects. One, what I call geographic, and the other, demographic. In the Old Testament, certainly a tribe had a land, it had a territory. And secondly, it had a people. It had a tribe of so many thousand people in the tribe. But you see there was both, and, and the word land here, it definitely means that. The, the, the tri word tribes definitely involves both the territory and the people in the territory. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, 1, he says, I'm an Israelite, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Paul, undoubtedly, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin includes a, a population and includes a, a, a geographic territory. That's absolutely essential for Jewish history. And uh, now, of course, we just wonder, don't we, what did the disciples think when they heard this? It must have been exciting for them. You know. And our Saviour didn't hold back. I like the aspect. He wasn't going to hold back describing the reward that will ultimately be theirs. Even though historic tradition tells us that all the twelve suffered martyrdom in this earthly life. Peter, we know the tradition of being you know, crucified upside down and so forth. But they all suffered terribly to the end of their earthly days. And yet he said, follow me. And they all rose up and followed him. And he told them what the end was going to be like in John's Gospel. You read some of that. But anyway, what reward, what delight came to the disciples as they went out, how this was in the back of their minds at all times, finally, one day, it's through much tribulation that we will enter into the kingdom. They knew that. We read that in Acts. The kingdom, what kingdom? Enter into what kingdom? In that verse there in Acts, obviously it's speaking of the future. It's not speaking about the kingdom of God now in some sense. Through much tribulation we enter the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ when he shall be king over all the earth. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And dear friends, I tell you, as we travel 
in this earthly journey here and all the trials. We keep this ahead. The best is yet to come. I shall see him as he is. I shall be like him. Churches ought to keep encouraging people because of their present sorrows and yet of the final glory to come. And that's what kept Paul going. To be absent from the Lord, present with Christ. He thought of that. But he had a work to do, so he had to continue doing the work. But he longed to be with Christ. But I, I want to suggest to you that final presence of Christ is not some sort of hairy, fairy, homogenous existence. The Augustinians believe basically the kingdom will just made up of everyone is sort of similar. There's not, no Jews, no Gentile. We're all one in Christ and you've got this sort of homogenous uh, congregation in the kingdom of Christ. I don't see that at all in Scripture. Uh, the transfiguration tells me that when Moses and Elijah were there on the mount and they were glorified to a degree there and Christ is gloriously shining there on that wonderful occasion, Moses is still Moses and Elijah was still Elijah, you know. It's not just all our differences are melted away and merged into a sort of clone-like existence. No, not at all. This corruptible body will put an incorruption, and yet I believe there will still be distinction in terms of who I am. I, I can't go further than that, but I believe that there will be this distinct identity of individuals in the kingdom of Christ. David will be there, Paul will be there, and won't that be a great... Won't you have a lot of, wouldn't you like to ask Paul and, and, and Moses and Dave a lot of questions? Oh, days and months and years talking. Well, maybe that will happen. I can only suggest it. But anyway, all I'm trying to say is that what we have here is the hope of the future reign of Christ when he shall be king over all the earth. I want to close here by quoting to you from a couple of well-known hymn writers. It's in the book here. I want to read it. Uh, one of them is Horatius Bonar, great hymn writer. He's Presbyterian. He's a favourite of mine. He also wrote wonderful books on the issue of Israel and the premillennial view of eschatology and so forth. Great man. He published a magazine for 25 years called The Prophetic Quarterly. It was about from roughly from uh, 1850 on to 1875, something like that. 25, you should see the magazine he wrote, full of enriching, deep, profound, prophetic understanding. I like Bono when he writes, but he's him. Listen to these, just a couple of verses here from Bono. Listen to this. Lord God of Israel, stretch forth... Correction, oops, I'm sorry, I got that. I think I got that. That's right, is that it? That's right. Lord God of Israel, stretch forth thy mighty hand for thine own Israel and for Israel's land. How long shall Zion mourn? How long shall Salem sigh? How long wilt thou delay the answer to her cry? God of salvation, come to thine own sons at length. Arm of the Lord, awake. Put on almighty strength to thine own chosen flock the great deliverance bring. Show this astonished earth that thou art Israel's king. Isn't that good? And now two stanzas from Charles Wesley. Yes, listen to this. 
we know it must be done. For God has spoke the word. All Israel shall their Saviour own to their first state restored. Rebuilt by his command, Jerusalem shall rise. Her temple on Moriah stand again and touch the skies. Dear friends, I find comfort in this. And also it helps me even in my dealing with Jews when I meet them, to love them. One book has been written by a man called Rosenberg. The title really is good. The title is, When a Jew Rules the World. What a good title that is. It's obviously speaking of the day when the Lord Jesus returns. Let me ask you, when he returns, will he have now prints in his hands? I believe so. But when he returns, will he return as a Jew? Of course. And I put this to our millennialists and they struggle with this when I say, will Jesus return as a Jew? And then if they say, yes, he'll return as a Jew, I say, will he have a Jewish people to encourage him and be with him even when he comes? The Augustinian says, no, we're all sort of merged together. No, 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 no. When Jesus Christ returns, there will be a Jewish redeemed mass to welcome him, you know. I love the verse, and I'll close on this, in John's Gospel, chapter 4. Our Saviour himself said, salvation is of the Jews. He didn't say salvation is of a Jew. If he had said salvation is of a Jew, everyone would have said, well, he's referring to himself. But he doesn't do that. He said salvation is of the Jews. And that is a broad statement that encompasses much of the Old Testament, the Lamb of God, and everything else, again, uh, about the Gospel. The Gospel is formulated on Jewish territory. And so forth. I could go on and on. I love saying, I trust that you'll be encouraged to love the Jewish people in their unbelief, in their struggles, and of course your desire will be that they may believe in their Messiah. And you've got to be gentle and subtle here. Uh, One of the best ways is just simply say, have you ever read the New Testament? Just get them to read the Gospels, if you can. It's not easy. One of the best ways is to get them to read a Hebrew New Testament. You can get them. That's one of the best ways you can help them. Because there have been many cases whereby the Jew just sits down, reads the Gospels and realises Jesus is the Lord's anointed. He's the Messiah. Let's close in prayer. Now, gracious God, how we thank Thee for the Word of God which abides forever. It clashes with this present world. The world doesn't like Your Word. But we, Your people, love Your Word. And therefore, our Father, as we deal with this matter of Israel, again, as Barna and Wesley have penned it so again, we long for the day when the Jew will be awakened, saved, and raised up to prominence. Hear our cry, we ask in Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen.